Hello and welcome to another edition of Atlas Information Live. We're glad that you could be with us today. And uh, today, uh, depending on where you are in the world, you might be facing uh, some pretty severe winter weather. We finally got a big bout of it here in Canada. And so uh, we spent the last three days shoveling snow on different occasions. But um, Hopefully it's, uh, it's over now so we can focus on the task at hand. And many of us may go through life like that, where whether we like it or not, all of us have these tasks at hand that we have to take care of, that we have to do. We live in the world and there are responsibilities we face. Some of those are financial, some of those are related to family or other obligations that we have. There's the practical, the practical considerations uh, related to just life in general. And, you know, the everyday chores, the everyday activities that we need to do. And that's all well and understood. But we may feel at times, a deep longing or a pull in a different direction. We may feel that we have some purpose, that we're here to live a life of real meaning, of real passion. And we might have even been granted a vision of that, whatever that vision may have taken, or inspiration or some insight, some intuition, some foresight as to some destiny we are here to fulfill, some life work that we are here to do. Or perhaps not. And how do we know if we have such a destiny, if we have not received a clear vision of it, or if we do not feel that longing, that pull. Could it be that we haven't been listening? Could it be that we're allowing the day-to-day -day responsibilities and obligations and concerns of the material world and our physical existence, could it be that we're allowing all of that to take precedence. That we're giving all of that a little bit too much energy, too much of our attention, too much of our time, 
our focus, our concentration? Is it possible that we're all together concerning ourselves too much with our comfort and our security, our obligations? What will my family think of me? What will my friends think of me? What will my colleagues think of me? Some of us may have felt a pull in a direction which is less oriented towards ourselves and more oriented towards others. And what we mean by that is more oriented toward service to others, helping others altogether more concerned with others than ourselves. It turns out there's a name for this. It's um, in Buddhism, I believe it's the original is Sanskrit. Um, it means, um, the word is Mahayana. To have that longing, that that pull, that drive within our hearts to live a life of devotion and dedication, to the benefit of others, to the improvement of their lot. And ultimately, in the highest expression of the Mahayama drive, it's to assist others in their path of awakening and self-realization. In other words, to save souls. There are levels of service to others, of course. We can be of service to them in a physical way. We can help heal their physical body. We can help heal them psychologically, of course. We can help them financially. Can help them out if they're in times of need we can feed them we can clothe them we can give we can give them shelter and we can give them comfort in their time of distress there are countless ways to serve what's more we may have some innate talent which for the same reasons which we expressed at the beginning, this talent which we felt very strongly for and had a great passion for in our youth, we allowed to fall by the wayside or become just a hobby as we had to explore so-called practical careers. So for example, we might have been a very passionate young painter or some other form of artist, or a performer, or a singer, a musician. And perhaps there's nothing that gives us more joy than to express ourselves through that creative art. And not just for the sake of being seen, or not just for the sake of recognition, 
but because we feel that our talents can make a contribution to others. That the beauty and the light and the truth within us is best expressed through that particular talent of ours. And that if we can bring some truth, some beauty, some light into others' lives, then by all means, we are making a contribution to them. We are lifting their spirits. Or we are inspiring them. We are touching their souls. We are allowing them to share and partake and commune with us as we exercise our soul, that inner light and love and beauty, as we become a vessel for that and pour it forth into the world. It's just like any host at a party. If we have created a delicious meal, it is our greatest joy to serve others that meal. And that meal came from us, from our garden, which we tended, from the recipes which we researched, or perhaps were handed down or per, uh, from, our, from our family, or perhaps recipes that came from us. We dreamt them up. And then our efforts that went into the preparation of that meal and the presentation of that meal and making sure the place settings were beautiful and, <laughs> and all the other efforts that we went into hosting our guests. If we do it for the sole reason of their benefit, that is not for recognition, not because we expect something in return, not because we want our guests to go home that night and be talking about us for the next few hours or the next few days or the next few weeks about how fantastic our dinner party was and, oh my God, that was the best roast beef I ever ate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we're not doing it for recognition. We're not doing it for validation. We're not doing it to, to get anything out of it other than the passion we feel and the longing we feel to be of service to others. And so you may have some talent, some art, some proficiency, which somewhere along the line, again, you couldn't pursue or you had to give up or you had to just relegate to being a hobby. Because life gets in the way. Family gets in the way. Obligations get in the way. And a million other excuses and a million other reasons and rationalizations get in the way. They get in the way of living a life of vision, a life of purpose, and a life of passion. Now, you may not feel this deep longing to be of service. You may not feel it. And that's fine. But if you do feel it, in whatever way 
in whatever form it takes. What are you doing about it? How do we answer the call? How do we know what to do, what we should be doing, how to proceed? It's not an easy question to answer. And we dare say it's different for everybody. But to truly make progress on the spiritual path, we, we must be of service to others in whatever way, shape, or form that takes. Not long ago, we made a video about selfish spirituality. It's a quote from Samael Moyor. It's on our YouTube channel. And in it, Samael clearly states that every initiation we receive in the supernal worlds is a payment made to us in return for our good works for the sake of others. In other words, we receive initiations in accordance with our karma. And one of the ways that we eliminate our karma, or we gain what you might consider karmic credits, is by working on behalf of others. So if we do not work on behalf of others, then the masters of the White Lodge owe us nothing. They owe us nothing because we've given nothing. If we focus purely on our own advancement, purely on our own awakening, if we are concerned solely with our own self-realization, and we rationalize it on the basis of, well, I have too many other responsibilities. I can't devote myself or dedicate myself to others because I've got family and I've got a job and I've got a business or a career or a mortgage, car payments, whatever the case may be. That's fine if you're okay with accepting that your spiritual advancement will be limited by your contributions to others. It's as simple as that. But being driven by a purpose and having passion for the Mahayana path the path of sacrifice and service for others does come at a price. Make no mistake. And one of the reasons why many on the spiritual path 
get stuck or find themselves in some sort of conflict or some sort of awkward compromise is because they fail to recognize that they're trying to walk two paths simultaneously. And those two paths are fundamentally incompatible. The one path is the materialistic, hedonistic, worldly path. And the other path is the path of the bodhisattva. Now, the first path is one where an initiate has become too identified with their comfort and security, with their earthly possessions, with their career, with their reputation, with the approval of their family and friends and colleagues. And maybe they did pursue a career in the arts and performance and sports or whatever they were good at. And now, perhaps they're too attached to their fame and fortune, recognition, notoriety, the respect they get from total strangers. They're successful in the world. They're liked, possibly even adored, or respected, or feared. All of that, all of it, is fundamentally incompatible with a path of suffering and sacrifice for others. To give our life to our innermost being and his destiny is the key. And does that mean that we have to go off into a cave and give away all of our worldly possessions and extract ourselves from civilization and from society and go and live, like we said, in, in a cave, in abject poverty, or go live under a bridge or what have you? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It just means that we have to stop caring about, about our station in life, our economic station, our social station. And in fact, our reputation and what others think of us and how others judge us and how others evaluate us and the validation we get from them, none of that matters to someone who's here with the burning fire in their heart, even if it's, even if it's just a candle flame, even if it's just a dim light, even if it's been shrouded over many years of neglect or many years of taking a back seat to worldly concerns. All of us have within us that light 
the spark, the seed of our innermost intimate Christ. And it's only a matter of going within and focusing and concentrating and praying earnestly and steadfastly to our innermost to show us the way, to give us the guidance, to have the path of our service revealed to us. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's something of something requiring us to make some sort of radical transformation in our life. But it does mean making a shift in priority. And it does mean making a commitment a solemn vow to our true self and to recognize our place in the scheme of things. And for many of us, it may be that we don't feel that, we don't have that, we can't find that within ourselves, because we haven't been given a sign, we haven't been given a vision to motivate us, to excite us, to give us that enthusiasm that we need, or to give us that clear direction that we are so accustomed to in our worldly pursuits of having a plan and sticking to the plan and seeing all the steps that we have to do in order to get to the goal that we've set for ourselves. And then we systematically tick off all the boxes one by one by one as we move forward and executing our plan. And we go through life like a project manager, identifying goals, setting timelines, and having everything systematically mapped out in our own mind and scheduling everything out and managing all of our funds, money coming in, money coming out, right? doing all budgets and everything to make sure that we can attain that goal. And these goals could be anything from buying the new house, getting the new car, going on vacation, getting married, could be any number of things. The, it's endless, the list of goals that people set for themselves. It could be learning a new language. <clears throat> learning a new skill, getting a new degree, getting another degree, a different degree, or the next level of degree in your field, a master's, a PhD, whatever the case may be. And if that's what we're used to, and if that's what we're identified with, and that's what we're comfortable with, having a plan like that and following it step by step by step by step like a recipe, 
And if we can't motivate ourselves to accomplishing anything, unless we have such a plan clearly mapped out with clear milestones and clear deliverables, then we may be very disappointed by the lack of vision that we receive from within. Because we don't get a map like that when it comes to our life's work. That is not how inspiration and vision and insight into our destiny. That is not how that works. Our task as a servant of our innermost being, as a vessel, as a vehicle for our innermost to accomplish his life's work through us. Ours is not to reason why. Ours is but to do or die. We must have faith and the true meaning of faith, the direct conscious experiential knowledge of our innermost being, moment to moment to moment. That's when we receive the guidance. Pay attention to this. Pay attention to that. Now do this, now do that, now say this, now say that. Moment to moment to moment to moment. We might have no idea where it's going or why we're being told to do something or why we have to pay attention. It might only become clear to us after the fact, but one thing is for sure, it'll never become clear to us if we don't pay attention to it. Because how can we know? We won't know what, we've, we won't know what we're missing. And if we just only give it a glancing view in the moment, then perhaps hours or days later, it'll become clear to us going, oh, now I know I was told why I was told to pay attention to that. I should have paid more attention because I only gave it passing lip service. I just gave it a set, you know, I, I didn't give it a second glance. I said, oh, okay, okay, I paid attention to that. Now, now then I was on to do other things. In the video that we created not long ago, we referred to what we called the meta mind of being. Now in esotericism, we can refer to this as consciousness. Right? Awakening consciousness. But really, consciousness is just another vehicle, another vessel. Consciousness is the bandwidth, the space in which we can receive what we refer to as the meta mind of being or the all mind of being, the all mind of God, which is channeled and funneled down into through our innermost being our innermost essence of the logos through our free consciousness and then we can receive that information in one or more of our three brains in our mind in our heart or in our body 
and we can we receive it we receive the information in our consciousness that and then it registers within us it goes where it needs to go so that we can work with that information so intuition for example we've many of us know what a gut feeling feels like or we feel something in the heart it's intuition but we can also receive information from our innermost in our mind and as we explained in our video the rational mind its job is to process that information and put it into a form that can be shared with the world it can be used practically shared with other others and this goes for all of our senses and all of our, our three brains and our five centers including the motor instinctive sexual center because our physical body can also work with intuition and anybody who's done any performing arts knows this where whether it's dancing to music or performing shakespeare the energy and the truth and the beauty and the light that's being conveyed through the sound that's energy that's pure energy remember sound is the creative force of the universe and if you have performed with passion with meaning with purpose out of the inner need to express beauty and truth and light and love through your music or through your acting or through your dancing or through your whatever even just public speaking even saying a eulogy at someone's funeral or you were the best man or maid of honor at someone's wedding it did, doesn't matter how often you rehearsed what you were what you needed to present in the moment you were presenting it something magical was happening and that magic wasn't there when you were rehearsing it and every performer has experienced this in the theater all actors will tell you that their best performance is opening night because the nervous energy the trepidation or perhaps even the outright fear many great actors all feel stage fright and they transform that negative nervous energy into positive energy and they 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 practice the transformation of impressions now most actors wouldn't know that terminology but they all know how to transform their stage fright into an incredible performance they 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 learn to transmute and transform that energy and then they channel that energy through their performance 
And stage fright, if you've ever experienced it, you know that it comes on spontaneously. It's not here necessarily. You may have acted all of your life or performed all of your life. And there's, there's many uh, uh, cases of actors and performers who got such terrible stage fright, they would vomit before they, before they got out on stage. But as soon as they were out on stage, the curtain went up and the lights were on them, boom, they were in their element and the fear was gone because it was transformed, it was transmuted. But not until the moment they were on stage And that extra energy and the presence of a full audience, a full auditorium, opening night, all of the energy, all of the attention, all of that focused consciousness on the performer, whether they be a musician, a dancer, an actor, it doesn't matter. They were able to harness all of that energy and all of that energy went into their performance as well. And next thing you know, new expressions magical moments in their performance happened on that opening night which never happened in rehearsal they would never would have dreamed of doing it in rehearsal never would have occurred to them but in the moment when it really mattered that that magic was there and many performers can attest to having this experience now why do we bring this up because let's say the notes on the page or the, the, the script that you're memorizing or the choreography that you've been practicing and rehearsing over and over and over and over and over again in preparation for the performance. And you may have been trying to do everything in your power to control how that performance was going to turn out. That's like us wanting to have that roadmap and planning everything out and structuring and controlling everything so that everything works out just the way we want it to or the way it should in our minds. But if we're in that place of passion, and when we're in the moment, out there on stage, opening night, with all of the stakes and all of the pressure and all of that heightened energy, some magic happens, which we could never have planned for, which we could never have mapped out. We could never have included that as one of our milestones or our action items or our actionable deliverables or all this other terminology that we use in business and finance and uh, logistics and bureaucracy and everything else called project management and so on and so forth, right? And you recognize that it's only by surrendering to the real artist inside and you allow that inner performer just to take over 
yes, all of your hard work, all of your preparation comes into play. But some beauty, some truth, some something from inside of you now flows through you in a way that wasn't there during rehearsals. Imagine being able to live like that moment to moment to moment. You don't know where it's going. You don't know where you're headed. You don't have a map spelling out exactly what you're going to be doing and when and where and with whom. But a number of weeks ago, we talked about being in the flow state and surrendering to that. If there is a reason why there are so few who consciously count themselves among the army of world salvation, it is because, practically speaking, they have not mastered this process of what we're talking about. And mastery of that process means mastery of oneself. And mastery of oneself begins with letting go of all of those worldly concerns that seems so important to us. Our, our family's approval, our reputation, our certain level of income and certain level of lifestyle, and certain accommodations and certain wardrobe and car and hedonistic pleasures of all kinds and recreation, and comfort, and security, and on, and on, and on, and on, and on it goes. All of these things that we have placed so much importance on. You see, all of that sensory, emotional, and mental energy and space, bandwidth, if you will, these faculties that we possess as a mortal vessel and servant, if these faculties are filled with the concerns and the de desires, the cravings and aversions and the beliefs and the of of the hedonistic worldly self, the materialistic worldly self, then, in effect, our cup is full. 
our cup is full. How can we receive into a full cup? And if your cup is full of vinegar, because let's face it, you put in the wine of the world into your cup, and sooner or later it's going to turn to vinegar. We all know that. We all have that experience. Because the material things that we buy today, we get bored of, or they break down, or a new model comes out, or our friends get a nicer version of it, and we start having envy, we start getting left behind, because now all of our friends have new phones, and we're still using a five-year-old phone. Maybe it's only a two-year-old phone. Or maybe it's our car, which, you know, it's, it's gone out of fashion, or it's not as environmentally friendly as it should be, or there's a million different reasons that the world gives you to constantly be chasing more stuff and different stuff and be replacing your stuff with other stuff and getting a bigger apartment or getting a nicer house or moving to a nicer neighborhood. And then of course there's fashion, right? And you know, your wardrobe is out of style, is out of date. You have to realize you only have so much capacity. You only have so much energy. You only have so much attention. How can you simultaneously devote yourself to a vision and a life of purpose and passion if all of your bandwidth, all of your storage, and all of your energy is being spent on worldly concerns. And make no mistake, those worldly concerns are mostly egoic. They're mostly your egos. They're mostly related to your false self. Not all of them, but most of them. Why? Because, honestly, the vi- to, to take care of the basics is pretty basic. You may be surprised how much weight and space and energy gets freed up when you stop concerning yourself with your reputation, for example, and stop, concerning, stop being concerned about what your family thinks of you. Because rest assured, If you follow the longing, the deep longing of your innermost to commit yourself in a life of service and sacrifice to others, there is a very good chance, a very high probability that your family will not approve. Your friends will not approve. Your colleagues will not approve. No matter how noble an effort or no matter how soulfully heartfelt you try to express it to them or no matter how carefully and and 
conscientiously, you attempt to express so that they can understand what you're doing and why you have to do it, there's a very good chance they won't get it. And there's a reason for that. And we'll get into some of those reasons in just a moment. But first, we're going to share this uh, comment by Azazel, who makes a good point here. We need to comprehend that we die either way. The implication here, what comes into mind when Azazel mentions this, is a quote from the Master when he said, we can learn very little from the phenomenon of birth, but from death, we can learn everything. Death is the great equalizer. Death is the great arbiter of our life. What happens to us when we die is entirely dependent upon how we lived our life. And more importantly, who we lived our life for. If you want to jump on and join the and join the discussion, uh, here's the link. Here's the, the the link for YouTube and the link for. Well, either way, the the link is um, is in the chat and there it's on screen as well. You're more than welcome to pop on, because. It might be interesting to hear some other people's perspective, some other points of view or some other experiences related to having a vision or having an inspiration or following a passion. Joseph Campbell, in terms of, in the context of his heroic journey and the, um, the hero with a thousand faces, He said the key to knowing what your mission in life is, is to follow your bliss. So follow your heart, that which gives you the most satisfaction. That's your calling. And if you don't know what that is, well, you have to observe yourself. You have to know yourself better. You have to pay attention. And by bliss, we're not talking about pleasure. We're not talking about any kind of hedonistic fulfillment, which is temporary and transient at best. No, we're speaking of a, of a fulfillment, which is a deep fulfillment of being. It's, it emanates from our heart and it fills us with this sense of this, yeah, this satisfaction of purpose. While we're doing it, but but especially once we've completed it or completed an aspect of it. And that it, 
it can fill us with a kind of pride, but it's not egoic pride. Or at least if we feel pride, we have to be careful that we don't allow our pride to get carried away. We don't fill ourselves with mystic pride because of a job well done, because we were doing our job. Because really, on the spiritual path, there are no special rewards or special accolades for doing the work. The, the work is its own reward. Service to others is its own reward. So again, what we are looking for, our calling to service to others, is that activity which is blissful in and of itself. And through which we give to others without any expectation, without any recognition, without any validation. And frankly, on the path of the Bodhisattva, without any appreciation. Recently, just serendipitously, a video popped up on our YouTube feed. Now, we don't make it a habit of watching videos from Christian fundamentalist groups or, you know, born-again Christian uh, channels or anything like that. But just serendipitously popped up on our feed four signs that you're on the right path. And, um, and there was, they had, of course, many biblical quotes and quoting Daniel and quoting Job and, and, and other books for the Bible. And it was very interesting because the video was quite good in its points. Of course, because it's a Christian fundamentalist point of view, there's no talk of innermost being, there's no talk of Divine Mother, there's no talk of your innermost intimate essence of Christ, there's just God. You're doing God's work. How do you know you're doing God's work? Well, if, uh, if the world hates what you're doing, there's a good chance you're doing God's work, like this type of thing. But it's a good point. If you're truly walking the path of the Bodhisattva, there is a very good chance that what you're here to do is not going to win you uh, a whole bunch of likes and followers on social media. This is just the hard truth and the hard fact of the times that we're living in, but it's always been this way. 
right? Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, they all, they all said thousands of years ago, no one is more hated than he who speaks the truth. The world, as this fundamentalist Christian video <laughs> pointed out, the world is ruled by Satan. And what that means is the vast majority of people on this planet are controlled by their individual shaitan, their individual Satan, which is an amalgamation of all their egos. And the desires of the egos, the desire for material, hedonistic, intellectual, sentimental, worldly concerns is antithetical to the purpose of the Christ. So a bodhisattva who is here doing the work of the Christ and is here to incarnate the Christ by eliminating all of their egos in one lifetime for the sake of of the end of suffering of all beings. They're here living a life of suffering and sacrifice for humanity. What they're doing is going to be antithetical to the desires of the vast majority of people on the planet. And the vast majority of institutions and the vast majority of structures and traditions and possibly even religions, depending on what one is here to do, how one does it, and just how degenerated and dogmatic and fanatical individuals from whichever religion is we're talking about, just how badly they react to the truth. That Christ is not a man, Christ is a force in the universe. Because many religious people don't want to hear that. Certainly fundamental Christians don't want to hear that. Even if deep down intuitively they know that, they feel that. And many of them feel as though they have some kind of intimate relationship with Christ. The problem is their mind gets in the way and their conditioning and their tradition and their dog, uh, dogmatic thinking gets in the way and they create a sentimental attachment that they have a personal one-on-one -on -one relationship with Jesus. And so what they might be here to do gets colored and tainted and twisted. And so many here who are, who feel the longing to be of service to others, many of them get, they funnel and they channel that service through their church, for example, or their church group, or a Christian framework. And many of them do a lot of good work for others, you know. I mean, Christian charities, they do a lot of good work. But are those individuals here to do, are, are they doing what they really are here to do? Or does that fundamentalist Christian framework simply give them 
something that scratches the itch, as it were, and allows them, and it's just another thing that falls into their camp of worldly comforts and security, because that church community that goes along with that, and that pride and that feeling of accomplishment, that, that sense of, of uh, you know, I did this, and I made a difference. And so we have to be careful that as we do for others, as we act on their behalf, that we don't allow a pride to build up in us. We don't take credit for it. But that's the problem with when our inner drive to be of service to others gets hijacked by the ego. And then the ego comes up with a, another, another way to serve. So we scratch the itch of, itch of helping others, but then the ego takes credit for it and then builds up a pride around, I'm such a good person. Aren't I, aren't I such a good person? Look what I did today. Look what I did this week. Look how many people I helped. And surely we all know people like that. And the ones who you know, they have that do-gooder vibe to them. They wear their charity like a badge of honor. You know, like military people when they get dressed up and they have all of their, their medals and their accolades on their lapel, on their chest. But are they really serving others? Or is that deep longing to be of service and sacrifice to others? Has it now just been twisted and co-opted and used by the ego for self-flagellation and self-righteousness and narcissism? So in the description for today's live stream, we mentioned the army of world salvation. Where does this where does this term come from? It's not the Salvation Army, <laughs> regardless of what you may think. The term was coined by Master Samuel Anwayor, to the best of our knowledge. That's the first we ever heard that term, that terminology used. And Master Samael was not only the avatar of Aquarius, he's the regent of Mars and the god of war. So one of the reasons why when you read the works of Master Samael, often you get a very strong impression, a very 
didactic, firm assertion of the facts. Because Samael, of course, being an avatar of the age of Aquarius, but the god of war, he expressed love in his writing through a great deal of tough love. Uh, it was, it's been expressed that he is the avatar of iron will. And his focus on sexual magic, for example, with willpower being the operative necessary faculty for us to develop on the path, especially if we are taking the, the direct path, the path of the razor's edge, the path of the bodhisattva, and practicing sexual alchemy, willpower, which is telema in Greek, willpower is essential. And so it is with, it is with great willpower that Master Samael writes his books. When you, when you read some of his lectures and you get to the Q&A, you discover how gentle and kind he was with individuals one-on-one -on -one and how easily he could switch from severity to mercy, right? From, from tough love to kind, gentle love. Nonetheless, the facts are the facts, and Samael's work speaks for itself. Master Samael was not kidding around. He was not fooling around. And so when he said that the modern Christian Gnostic movement, which he was here to establish, included the establishment of what he called the Army of World Salvation. Every individual who commits themselves to the path, the path of Gnosis, indeed, but the path of awakening and self-realization of the being, everyone who makes that commitment in one form or another are signing up to the army of world salvation. We live in a time, of course, the iron age of this humanity, the Kali Yuga, and suffering of this humanity is great. The darkness, the sleeping masses are, is, is incalculable. And we, you can see it. Well, we don't have to tell you this. You just look around you. Turn on the news. You see it all around you. And as we approach the end of the Kali Yuga, we have to face the harsh reality of the fate that awaits this humanity. So then what does army of world salvation mean? Does it mean we're going to save the world? 
This is a beautiful line from the Talmud, which you probably remember from Schindler's List. It's the quote that they engrave on the ring, which they give to Oscar Schindler at the end of the film. And the scripture reads, He who saves a single soul saves the world entire. We all know about a human being being a human being as microcosm and the world as macrocosm. So there is that connection, that link. The world is a reflection of individuals. So every individual whom we can help, whom we can guide to the path. We are making a contribution to the whole. And frankly, it is a work that really only can be done one soul at a time. As we discussed last week, there is no mass global awakening. If anything, it's the great awakening. That we are that we see before us happening before us. Now, does that mean that you are meant to quit your job, start a YouTube channel, or open a retreat center, or a healing center, or start a religion, or God only knows what else, and start trying to reach and teach and as many people as you can? No. No, it doesn't mean that at all. That's most likely just your own ego mind assuming that that's what you need to do. Maybe not. Maybe you are here to start a retreat center. Maybe you are here to start a healing center. Maybe you are here to start a YouTube channel. That's not for us to say. But if it feels forced, if it's not coming innately from within, if you don't receive that vision from within, but impose that vision from above, from your own mind, your own perspective, your own beliefs, then, then there's going to be a disconnect. Follow your bliss. Observe yourself. Look within. What is it that you do that while you're doing it, time stands still? And Start there. No one can tell you you belong or you don't belong. And no one can sign you up for anything that you as an individual 
haven't agreed to. There is no draft. There is no, obviously, no recruitment centers. The army of world salvation lays within. But because of the state of the world that we are in, because of the timing of the, of the age that we are in now and what is fast approaching for this humanity, there are a great many of us here now who came here now for the express and specific purpose of serving in what we call the army of world salvation, what Samael called the army of world salvation. There are many of us who came here to walk a path of suffering and sacrifice for humanity, to serve for the sake of others, for the sake of the end of their suffering, and practically speaking, to help awaken as many good seeds as we can for the coming harvest. That means souls that can go to nirvana. And it also means souls who are worthy of establishing the next humanity on this planet and the new golden age. We've talked about this before. All ark builders concern themselves not only with building the ark, but also with attracting the seeds which go into the ark. Of course, in the Bible, in the story of Noah, that's represented by all of the animals, two by two. But practically for a humanity, that means a collection of individuals who have earned the right, who have demonstrated their worthiness, who have done the work, and who, on some level at least, feel that Mahayana motivation within themselves. So, as we said, we cannot earn our way into the supernal worlds. We cannot receive initiations unless we pay something of ourselves towards others, the service and sacrifice for others. If we do not have that within us, how are we... How do we deserve to be in the supernal worlds? Likewise, if we don't have that within us, how, what sort of contribution are we going to make to the golden age? 
That's why it is a golden age. Because everyone who populates a golden age starts out that way. It really is that sort of utopian ideal that people have been writing about for centuries and talking about how it's a place that never was or will never be. Well, there was a time in the golden age of this humanity, in the golden age of Egypt, for example, and the golden age of other ancient civilizations, when human beings were not perfect, but they concerned themselves with their own perfection, with the path of perfecting themselves, the path of the razor's edge, the direct path, the path of the bodhisattva, the path of suffering and sacrifice for others. When you have a humanity which is oriented in that way, there is a tremendous exchange, a tremendous flow That is what is embodied in our high-order rainforest ecosystems, which is an aspect of the Atlas Project. And what we soundly and firmly believe will be the center focal point of the physical arc that we build for this humanity. That technology exists for that precise reason, to help all the individuals living in that space of love to be able to attune themselves to those energies of collective harmony and symbiosis. That is the kind of balance and harmonious coexistence that is possible when we immerse ourselves in the energetic field of a high order rainforest ecosystem, collective harmony and symbiosis. That on the human level is service and sacrifice to others. Because what goes around comes around in that model expressed in its highest possible potentiality here on earth. So it's worthwhile as you do your introspection and meditation and you look at your life and you look at the path that you are on, it is worthwhile to ask yourself the question. And more importantly, ask yourself the question. Ask your Divine Mother to show you the way to give you a sign, to give you a vision. And if you have difficulty receiving that, if you have difficulty hearing it, or you lack the patience to receive it, or you've, you, you just don't have that proficiency in meditation, or whatever, rest assured that following your bliss 
is a good place to start. And letting go your attachments and identifications to some of these worldly concerns is a good bet. But perhaps, like some of us, you have felt something and you do feel something, a longing, a pull. And maybe you felt it all of your life. Or maybe it's a realization that came to you as a child, in your teenage years, in your college years, whatever. Maybe you woke up one day suddenly with this burning fire in your heart to help others or to do something, that you're here to do something and you just don't know what it is. Again, the answer is waiting for you. But the process is one of mystery, if you will. We don't get to see the whole picture. We don't get to see the whole map, the whole plan laid out in front of us. The information comes to us on a need-to-know basis, and each step is a test of our willingness to suffer and sacrifice. Just what are we willing to give up of ourselves, our false selves? What comforts? What security? What materialism? What hedonism? And each time we have to make that sacrifice, it's it's another step along the way. It's like Azazel says right here. It's piece by piece. It's step by step. This is why the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. And Rome wasn't built in a day. And Hadrian said, when they asked Hadrian, how was Rome built? Hadrian said, brick by brick, my brothers, brick by brick. You see, we are not the architect of our destiny, right? We're the bricklayer. How many bricklayers have seen the design, <laughs> have seen the architectural drawings, let alone the 3D renderings of, of, of what they're working on? A bricklayer knows that his job is to lay the bricks. And they have to be, you know, that's what they're an expert in. Or if they're a master bricklayer, then they know exactly how those bricks need to turn out. So, as we progress on a path of vision, purpose, and passion, as each brick presents itself, our focus and our attention and our concentration and our concern should be on that brick. Sure, we could have the, the intuition, the sense, the knowledge that, yes, this too is part of the path. Yes, this is, this is another brick 
on the yellow brick road that we are paving toward the castle, right? The castle of the wizard, if you want to use the Wizard of Oz allegory. But while you're laying the brick, your focus and your attention and your effort and your energy should be on the brick that you're laying. This is why mindfulness, self-observation, self-remembering, and attention and focused concentration on what we are doing at all times, that's where that comes into play. That traditional Buddhist practice, if you will, of mindfulness. But it's also, we like to uh, say this quote from Empire Strikes Back, when Yoda tells Luke, long, long have I watched this one, always thinking about the future, the past, his mind never on where he was, what he was doing. He says to Luke, you are reckless. And if we're honest with ourselves, when we're doing things and our mind is wandering, we're being reckless. And it's one thing to be washing dishes and your mind's wandering, right? It's very unlikely that washing those dishes is part of your life's work. That's part of the mundane existence of being a mortal vessel here in the world. We have to wash dishes. We have to mop floors. We have to vacuum carpets and dust shelves and clean toilets and shovel driveways, <laughs> which, which we're getting very good at, suffice it to say, um, after 50 years of, of shoveling driveways. But there's a Zen saying, right? Uh, before enlightenment, chop wood, gather water. After enlightenment, chop wood, gather water. And while you're chopping wood, chop wood. And while you're fetching water, fetch water. If you're just walking in the woods, walk. Focus your attention on the act of walking. And yes, when you're washing dishes, watch, wash dishes. Have you ever really observed and paid attention while you're washing dishes? It's a fascinating exercise. It's a fascinating little world of that soap and all those bubbles and the interactions and getting all the grease off of everything and the hot water and pay attention. Be present. Be here now. Well, these are all cliches. We don't have to rhyme all these off for you. You, you know all this. You know all this. But where this really matters is that all of that is practice. All of that is rehearsal. That's conditioning your mind. That's strengthening your consciousness, your focus, your concentration, your attention. For what? For your life's work. 
which you cannot do if your mind is wandering. How? When what you need to be doing is your innermost being's work. When you need to serve, when you need to be a physical vessel for your innermost being. How do you know what to say? How will you know what to do? If you haven't been practicing mindfulness, if you don't know how to wash dishes when you wash dishes and chop wood while chopping wood and fetching water while you're fetching water, how will you know to be who you really are when called by your innermost? to be his vessel, his vehicle in the world. To receive an insight, a vision, a passion, to serve others and to fulfill one's destiny. This is the path. Yes, it's a path of slow psychological death and unbecoming a mere mortal, a personality with all of their cravings and desires and hedonistic concerns and material concerns and and, and worrying about what people think about me and so on and so forth and everything. Like, we have to devote and dedicate ourselves in each and every moment to perfecting ourselves, to making ourselves, to emptying our cup, to emptying our vessel of all the garbage, of all the trash, of all the superfluous unnecessary, worldly, meaningless, forgettable, pointless, purposeless <laughs> concerns and focus on being, just being present here and now and remembering our true self, remembering our innermost, remembering our Divine Mother. Because in that practice, and in that attunement, and in the practice of observation, one eye in and one eye out, and observing our egos, and observing our mind, observing our three brains, observing all that garbage and junk that comes up, not identifying, not attaching, and all the impressions that are coming and triggering our lust, and our gluttony, and our pride, and our fear, and our anger, we're transforming those impressions in the moment. And we are training ourselves. We're in the gymnasium of life, getting stronger, getting stronger, doing bench presses and shoulder presses and hip thrusts and, and, and leg extensions and running on treadmills and doing exercise bikes, doing spinning classes and doing all those things, right? Making ourselves stronger, improving our, our athletics. 
creating a better, stronger physical vessel, right? That's what the gymnasium is for. Well, our lives, our mortal lives are just the same. We have the psychological gymnasium, the emotional gymnasium, the energetic gymnasium. We, we, we do the work, we exercise. And then while we're washing dishes, we wash dishes. We're present, focused, concentrated. We're there in the moment, focused on what we are doing. We are making of ourselves a fine-tuned instrument. And a fine-tuned instrument can play and express the music so much with so much more subtlety and beauty. Right? Are we going to be a, uh, 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 a dime store violin? Or are we going to be a Stradivarius? When our innermost master musician grabs hold of us and says, it's time for you to resonate with this music that we have written for you to play. Will we be a finely tuned Stradivarius? Or will we be a dusty old dime store fiddle? You see, okay, pause, pause. Azazel says, like my mother said, <laughs> cleaning is not boring, it is maintenance. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and Azazel says, maintenance can be translated to mean entertaining too. Cleaning is one of those things where well let's let's take an example. If you're familiar with Jordan Peterson, you know that he's a big proponent of make your bed, clean your room, right? He's 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 but I mean he's talking to young generations who, you know, never never received any discipline and never received any things, right? So he's trying to be the the strong male role model that has been lacking in their life for their entire lives. Sorry. So he's like, you know, you want to make something of yourself. You want to, you want to make something of your life. Well, start by making your bed, cleaning your room. And there's a lot to be said for that. And so there's the old expression. Cleanliness is next to godliness. And there is something satisfying about having a beautifully kept environment or a clean environment, right? And there's there's actually truth to that because dust and dust bunnies uh, accumulate and they are places where uh, jinn, and uh, so what uh, the Muslims call jinn, but we can call astral larvae and other entities, fourth dimensional entities accumulate. And fifth dimensional entities, you know, well, that's why uh, Native Americans, they have what, what are called dream catchers, 
right? They call them dream catchers and they're elaborate woven uh, string threads with feathers and all this kind of stuff. And they hang them in their bedroom and whatever. Why? To So they can have more elaborate dreams. So what they're doing is they're capturing and attracting fourth and fifth dimensional entities, <laughs> which are basically going to, you know, mess with them, screw with them while they're, while they're sleeping, while they're dreaming. That's what a dream catcher is. And when we have dust bunnies in all the corners of our place or under the bed or whatever the case may be, right? We've, we've have inadvertently uh, created our own dream catchers, so to speak. But dust bunnies are, of course, you know, the, uh, the presumption is that a beautifully handmade woven dream catcher is going to only attract positive entities, right? Or at least that's, that's what the tradition is um, among the, uh, the natives. But, uh, you know, just a ad hoc crappy dust bunny that's just accumulated of its own accord, right? It's nothing particularly beautiful or magical or handmade or artistic about it. It's just this, you know, it's dirt. <laughs> so what do you think dirt attracts? And the energy, the energy of that attracts energetically the same thing. So, yeah, cleaning can be entertaining. <laughs> but it's also important. It's, it's also a representation as within, so without. So as without, so within. We, we talked about having high order ecosystems with Peapod Life and living in that space of love and that positive energy and that energy of, uh, that is constantly balancing itself. And so when we're in that energy field, we too are receiving the benefits of that constant balancing because when you enter into the the space of love of an ecosystem, you become part of that ecosystem. So if you are out of balance, you're throwing the ecosystem out of balance. And the ecosystem, because there's billions and trillions of little beings in there that are self-organizing intelligently, they're going to be working to bring themselves back into balance. And that is going to include bringing you back into balance. So our environment is important. Our environment is often a reflection of our psychology. So if our house is a mess, then there's a good chance that our subconscious isn't looking all that hot. Isn't, isn't, isn't a very um, pleasant place to be. That's another way in which we can approach this path of vision and purpose and passion. Because many of us may feel the longing and may want desperately to do something important in life. And we might must desperately want to receive that vision, that knowledge, that, that, that insight, that whatever, that we can go gung-ho on 150% and follow our bliss and go charging on a white horse into battle on, be, uh, you know, on behalf of the army of world salvation. But if we're not ready to do the work, if we're not ready to, to do the training, 
Have you ever seen those old Jerry Lewis movies? There's one called At War with the Army. Jerry Lewis and the Army, and he's a complete screw-up, right? He's a screwball. It's a nightmare. And all he does is he messes everything up for everybody else. It's, it's, he actually, you know, causes more harm than good. If you remember the movie correctly, it's very old. It's been a long time since we saw it, that's for sure. But Jerry Lewis was one of the grandfathers of what they call screwball comedy, right? But a more modern version of that might be um, like a Mr. Bean. But the thing about Jerry Lewis and At War in the Army, At War with the Army, is that he's so eager, right? He wants to do his part. He's so eager to do his part. But if he, but if he goes to war without preparation, if he goes to war without discipline, if he goes to war, what sort of what sort of soldier is he going to be? What sort of good is he going to do when he just has the drive? He wants to make a contribution, but he sucks at it. He's not ready. Do you really think his superior officer is going to shove a rifle into his hand? Maybe once upon a time, long ago, in you know the Civil War and various revolutions, when it was just, well, you know what? As long as he doesn't shoot anybody on our side, it's another, it's another target for the enemy to, to, to draw fire from the guys who are actually know what they're doing. Maybe once upon a time, people thought like that. But we're talking about the army of world salvation here. It's been a while now, but there was a... Uh, oh gosh, what was the, uh, the name of the movie? We're going to have to uh, look it up here. It was the, uh, the World War II movie. Uh, no, it's not... Uh, Hang on one second. Okay. Axaw Ridge. We had all these World War II movie titles coming into our head, <laughs> but not that one. But it's it's uh, a few a few a little while ago. Um we talked about Hacksaw Ridge and uh, it's the World War II movie starring Andrew Garfield. It was directed by Mel Gibson. And um, it was the, uh, uh, the story of Desmond Doss, who was a, um, he was a, um, a Seventh-day Adventist Christian and it was against 
his religion to take life. And so he wanted to do his part. He wanted to go and serve the U.S. military, but he refused to carry a gun. And so all through basic training, he was the fly in the ointment of all of his superior officers and the generals and his his platoon uh, mates, and it was a it was a nightmare for everybody. The difference was Desmond Doss wasn't Jerry Lewis. <laughs> he wasn't at war with the army. No, he was there to serve the army. He was to, there to serve his platoon. And he was there to do so at the same time as he served his God, his innermost, his innermost intimate Christ which said to him, have no fear. As Azil says, you got to follow the five virtues of chivalry. Do you know what they are? Have no fear in the face of your enemy. Be strong and upright so that God will love thee. Speak the truth always, even if it leads to your death. Safeguard Safeguard the helpless and do no wrong. And we're getting choked up. At safeguard the helpless and do no wrong. That was Desmond Doss. And if you haven't seen that film, watch it. Mugaboo 22 says, that's my favorite saying in all movies I have ever seen. I have watched this movie a thousand times. He's referring to The Kingdom of Heaven by Ridley Scott. Yes, that's right. And as Azazel says in the Witcher game, it was compassion, generosity, honor, valor, and wisdom. Of course, there's, there's lots of codes of chivalry out there. <laughs> um, in Ultima 4, there's eight great virtues uh, to balance the seven deadly sins. Um, But whether it's Kingdom of Heaven or Hacksaw Ridge, and Kingdom of Heaven is set in the Crusades and Hacksaw Ridge is set in the Second World War, neither of which are particularly pleasant or proud moments for Christianity. And yet, in both those films, we see an individual rising to the challenge in the face of not only great adversity, but great pressure to break his vows, to break his vow of, of chivalrous conduct, to break his vow to his God, his innermost being. 
and kingdom of heaven, Balian says it's carved in his uh, blacksmith shop. But he says also to, uh, oh, what's her name? He says to her, it's my land. What sort of man would I be if I did not try to make it better? This is our land in microcosm. And this world is our land in macrocosm. What sort of initiate would we be if we did not try to make it better? That's both. Because you can't make the world better if you are not making yourself better. Because you will not be given the weapons by your Divine Mother until you are worthy to receive them. Until she has the confidence that you can wield them. Just as Desmond Doss wasn't given the drive, the fire, to go and serve in the Second World War, until his innermost being knew that he was strong enough to do so without taking a life. Mugabu says, I always pondered on the meaning of this. Be brave and upright that God may love thee. It's exactly what we're talking about. Desmond Dawes in Hacksaw Ridge was brave and upright that God may love thee. How does God love us? How does our innermost intimate Christ love us? By trusting us with his work in the world. That is how your superior officer shows their love for you. By letting you go out and represent him in the world. But you must be brave and you must be upright in order to receive the orders and in order for your Divine Mother to give you the weapons so that she deems you worthy of descending into the labyrinth, into the underworld, amongst all the demons and the scourge and the darkness. Why? To slay Medusa. Or as Theseus was armed by Athena to go enslave the Minotaur, go and slay the Minotaur. And that's within our own psyche. Because as we do that work on ourselves, and we are brave and upright in that work, so then we can be brave and upright in the world on behalf of others. Because it is only through sacrificing our own false self 
that we gain access to that strength and that quiet confidence from within to then go and sacrifice for the sake of others. As Azel says, yeah, in uh, Kingdom of Heaven, my favorite quote is that chess quote. You can't remember it though. Yes, Magabu says, a king may move a man. A king may move a man. Oh, the exact quote is, But remember, the man's soul is in his keeping. Though you presume to be moved by men of power, remember that in the final judgment, th this will not suffice to say that, oh, I was told to do thus, or virtue was not convenient at the time. This will not suffice. I can't remember the entire thing, but it's something to that effect. But that is the best, but that is, that is that excellent quote. And, and I don't, you know, um, it's the, it's the quotation, that little scene with the king in the middle of the film, which defines the, the crux of Balian's actions at the end, which results in uh, a great, a moment of heroism or a calamity, depending on how you judge the film and how you judge the outcome and his choices and the decisions that he makes. Um, because even as love interest says to him, you know, there will come a time, there will come a day when you will regret, you know, not doing a little evil to do a greater good. Right, she says, but that's not how someone in the army of world salvation thinks. That's not that's not a chivalrous knight. That's not a a servant of God. There is always speaking the truth is always the right path. Now does it mean that you volunteer the truth all the time? No. We have to use discretion. We have to use discernment. And we don't cast pearls before swine. And certainly, Gnostics, for thousands of years, went underground. And they were forced to go underground because they were being persecuted. And so, the teachings were kept secret. And the more powerful the teachings, the more tightly held a secret they were, a tightly um, kept and tightly protected secret, because with great power comes great responsibility. And you don't go around handing out power to those who are not worthy of it. So again, here we are brought to a place, okay, without ever, without any map, without any preparation, without any planning, without any milestones, just trusting that 
the natural flow would guide us. Here we have come to a beautiful analogous expression. As above, so below. As within, so without. As in microcosm, so in macrocosm. The Gnostics had to keep the powerful teachings, especially White Tantra. They had to keep them a secret. They couldn't allow that to get into the wrong hands. Because with great power comes great responsibility. That's a quote from Spider-Man, the Spider-Man movies, of all things, right? So now look to yourself and look to that feeling, that longing, that drive to do your life's work and to be an instrument of God in the world. With great power comes great responsibility. Are you prepared? Have you demonstrated your willingness to make the commitment, to take the pledge, to speak your vows to your own innermost? I pledge myself to you. I promise myself to you. If you put your faith and trust in me, I swear I will not let you down to the best of my ability, as far as I am able, as, 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 as flawed and as unprepared and as dirty a vessel as I am, I pledge to do the work. I pledge to improve myself. I pledge to make myself a better, more worthy vessel of you your light, your love, your weapons, the weapons with which we slay the demons. I will earn your trust. As Azel says, we only need to look at the antithetical spirit of Samael to know that is true. On Goetian terms, it is Andras. Well, that's in Hungarian, it's Andras. But in Goetian terms, it is Andras. I don't know if you want to explain that a little more, uh, Azazel, but... The uh, the antithetical spirit to Samael. So you might want to embellish that or explain that because um, I'm not even get, getting that reference. But we recognize that you're expressing the inverse of Samael. So Samael's demonic double, cosmic double, if you will. That's what we sense you're trying to express there, but that's um, 
but perhaps we're misinterpreting what you're what you're saying. In any case, the fact remains that with great power comes great responsibility and weapons are dangerous. And the army of world salvation is an army. We're fighting demons. We are fighting the Black Lodge. We are fighting for the souls of humanity. And are we equipped? Are we, pre are we pre prepared to go into battle? And what we learn from Hacksaw Ridge is that sometimes we're not given weapons to go into battle. Sometimes we're told to go into battle without weapons. And that's exactly what Desmond Doss did, right? He went into battle as a medic. And he... He performed his duty with tremendous heroism in spite of not being armed. You see, that, that was his weapon. His integrity, his devotion, that was his weapon. So, we that was his bliss. His bliss was to be true to his uh, Seventh-day Adventist Christian upbringing. He would not compromise that. That was his vow. I will not take a life, but I will serve my country. Now that takes courage to be that upright. And it's a beautiful example because it just goes to show us all the different ways that our duty, our purpose, our destiny may unfold. Something as inconceivable to every, everybody else around us but makes complete and total sense to us, not rationally, not logically, intellectually, but in, in, in the very soul of our being. It just, it just, it's what we need to do. It's what we are here to do. It's our calling. It's our purpose. Can you imagine anything more outrageous to the army generals and commanders and superior officers and platoon mates than someone saying, I need to serve my country in the military. I need to go to the front lines. And I need to do that without carrying a firearm. I need to do that without being asked or told that I must kill that I must take life. It's such a beautiful movie because it shows us the type of opposition that we face when we devote ourselves, when we pledge ourselves to our innermost intimate Christ, to our God. And when we uphold, when we 
that integrity, that promise, and we are not willing to compromise, even in the face of all the opposition, in the face of all the logic and rationale, because everyone around us will be rationalizing why we need to do what they tell us to do or what they think we should do or why we can't do what's in our heart because A, B, C, X, Y, Z. What, are you kidding? Are you insane? And many of us, if we followed our heart, we've been on the receiving end of that kind of opposition, of that kind of static, of that kind of resistance. And lots of times from the people we love the most. And that's when we realize when we can't back down, when we can't step away, when we can't let go of that drive, that inner knowing, that inner purpose, that that flame kindling inside of our heart, that's when we know that our love of Christ, that our devotion and love and dedication to serving others is greater even than our love for the so-called, for our so-called loved ones. As Azul says, uh, said to incite wars of, wars of generals and explained as a dangerous spirit to invoke and that no demon likes it when he goes wild. You're referring to Andrash here, okay. But do you see then the the big picture, but also the intimate, personal, practical, mystical path that we're talking about here? We all, if we are, if we count ourselves a part of the army of world salvation, that we are here to serve others and possibly even to save souls. Because what else, what else matters really? Then we may all have stories to share. And there are degrees, there are levels to living a life of suffering and sacrifice. And not everyone is born to be a martyr necessarily. But it's fair to say that if you retrospect on your life, and you can do this in meditation, perhaps just in contemplation, perhaps you have journals that you can dig up, you know, somewhere in your basement. Or perhaps you don't need to do any of that. Perhaps you know, 
You just know. You've always known. You've always felt something in your heart, even as a child, growing up, as a teenager, whatever. It's always been there. Perhaps it was always there. Maybe faint. Maybe a nagging, I don't know what that is exactly, but it's just, it's just, it's always there. I've always felt it. I've always felt the need or the knowledge, the, the knowing, the inkling that one day I would be doing something to help humanity. Well, we're here to tell you that there's never been a better time or a better place. So lean into that. Go into that in meditation. And if you don't get a clear answer, if you don't get a, you know, don't expect an answer. Just feel into that place in your heart. That knowing, that inkling that you've had. And the stronger that inkling has been, it depends on the choices that you made. In our case, all of our decisions, all of our important decisions in life, were made from that place, from from the time that we turned 18 years old. Actually, before that, but certainly our entire adult life. At every turn, we always acted on the still soft voice, and we always acted on this inner knowing that we had. Now, mind you, we had our first shamadi in meditation at the age of seven, and we learned the name, our name, Atlas, at 16. So we may be a special case. We don't expect everybody necessarily to, to have had a similar experience or to feel that as a you know, as an elementary school child or whatever. But our experience, our experience is growing up, the good and the bad, the so-called good and the bad, have all been related to the work that we're now doing. And that work is absolutely related to the army of world salvation. Benjamin says, should we all undergo intense purification before we receive this revelation from above about what we should do to be a part of God's work? Should we all undergo intense purification before we receive this revelation? So we don't have to be fanatical about this. And but remember well one way to look at this we all know that impressions are food 
So we are what we eat. So if we fill our mind, heart, and body with garbage, what sort of a temple have we prepared? What sort of house of God are we? How do we expect God to come and enter into our house when it is filthy? And yet, that's the very symbol of Christ being born in the manger, on a bed of straw, surrounded by smelly, stinky farm animals and the smell of manure. Ah, but the symbol of the three kings, the three wise men, the three wise men bring their gifts to the newborn Christ. What are, the, what are these three wise men in us? Our mind, our heart, and our body. And those are three wise men. So we use our mind with wisdom and our heart with wisdom and our body with wisdom. Now, is it wise to fill our mind with garbage? Is it wise to fill our body with toxins and alcohol? Is it wise to fill our heart with images of violence and images of bloodshed and scary images and, and, and uh, images of people suffering and people being terrible to one another? And getting ourselves all worked up emotionally about that. Or filling our hearts with base sentimentality. And filling our mind and filling our heart with desire for materialism. And, and filling, our, uh, 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 filling ourselves with desire for uh, hedonistic uh, sensory satisfaction. So how do we use our three brains? Do we use them with wisdom? Start there. Just start there. Remember, before you can live a suffering and sacrifice for others, you have to be able to suffer and sacrifice for yourself, for your true self, for your innermost God. If you can't sacrifice drinking alcohol and sacrifice, if you can't let go of watching pornography, and gambling and and uh, you know drinking alcohol and eating garbage. Now, does that mean you can't have a bag of chips every now and then? No, you don't have to be fanatical about it. When you say purification, we don't have to go about trying to make ourselves into into a uh, 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 you know I don't know some kind of a, a extreme ascetic monk or whatever right it's it's but it's simply about recognizing 
that our mind and our heart and our body are the three gifts that we bring to the newborn Christ, our innermost intimate Christ, which is born in the animal cubby of our mortal self. We're animals. We stink. There's, you know, there's no getting around that. We're infested and infected with egos. There's no getting around that. But if we prepare a bed of straw and we put the animals in their place, in their pens, and we bring the three kings, the three wise men to come bring their gifts to the service of the newborn Christ, then the Christ will come into the world even in that manger, even surrounded by those animals, because the Christ will recognize here is a place where I can come into the world. Even if I'm just a spark, even if I'm just a seed, even if I'm just a child, an inner child, this is a place that I can grow and develop to be the messenger and servant of God, the Son of God. That is my potential. Why? Because in this place, as humble and as meager and as dirty and filthy as it may be, at least the three wise men come and have pledged their gold, frankincense, and myrrh to me. Their greatest gifts have been devoted and dedicated to me. So of course the Christ says, that is a place where I as a seed can take root. That's a foundation for me to begin. I have something to work with there. And, and so that, and then of course, let us not forget Mary and Joseph, our inner Ida Pingala, our inner Adam and Eve, working with the sexual energies, the masculine and feminine sexual force. We're doing pranayama, working up when upright sexuality. Right? This is where, and working, if we have a spouse, working with white tantra and sexual alchemy, because that is how the Christ is born inside of us, immaculate conception, right? So all of that, you see, that whole nativity scene is an allegory for each and every one of us, for each and every one of us. As Azil says, oh, and Benjamin thanks us for that, uh, what he feels is very practical advice. As Azil says, ours is related to act against injustice. So we're in training for it, he says. Even if we receive weapons, we do not go out until we're qualified for it. And this, is, this can be tricky because remember that one of the great obstacles that we face on the path is fear. And fear can come in the way of self-doubt. And that's when we second-guess 
our intuition, when we second guess the being impulse. So discernment is very important. That's the other reason why we want to always be mindful and always practice self-observation, even while we're washing dishes, even when we're driving around, even when we're doing so-called mundane things, because our innermost being and our Divine Mother can take advantage of those opportunities to communicate to us, to send us signs, to, to uh, send us impulses and speak to us through the still soft voice, through our intuition, even while we're doing the most mundane things. Because that also is an opportunity to practice and develop that skill, that ability, that, that discernment. So to say that even if we receive weapons, we do not go out until we're qualified for it. As long as we know who is making that decision. Because at the same time, it's not necessarily true that we've received the weapons, so that automatically makes us qualified. Because the mind can go in that direction as well. Well, I've received the knowledge. Well, then, gosh darn it, I'm going to go and use it. I'm going to go and share it. I'm going to go and... Right? Because, yeah, you we might not be qualified. So... Uh, on that point, on that point, actually, uh, this is the this is the article to read, and um, there it is. The link is in the chat. Um, if it if it if it will ever upload. And there it is on screen. But to hurt or not to hurt, it's, it's, you know, this article is nine years old now, right? You wrote it in 2014. Um, this is one of the first articles we wrote actually on our, uh, on our, blog of an esoteric nature and we really wrote it for ourselves and it it tackles this question of who is qualified um anyway well you, you'll read through it if you uh, if you are so inclined. The point that the point that the article makes here, and it was a uh, it was a hard lesson for us to learn. And as Azul says, yeah, I should read it again because the point. To be in the army of world salvation of course practically in the real real world it feels like we're being given the weapons and we're going out and using them but remember what we talked about about practicing mindfulness and and 
being preparing our vessel, our house of God, to be able to receive our innermost intimate Christ. So in those terms, what we are doing is we are honing ourselves. We're sharpening ourselves, our skills, our abilities. We're strengthening our integrity, our solidity. We're making ourselves sharp and well-balanced. So that we can be the katana in the hand of our innermost lord and samurai. That's, of course, from Highlander. When we recognize ourselves in this way, it's not so much that we receive the weapons, we are the weapon. We are the tool, we are the vessel, the vehicle. And it is our innermost master who wields us with his skill, with his experience, with his panache and his charm and his wisdom. As Ramirez wields his katana and teaches Connor. To be the right to be the right hand of God, right, is to be the gauntlet on the right hand of our innermost Lord and Master. Right? For the sake of the Master, to be the sheepdog who's well trained, who answers the call. If you've ever watched a shepherd working with border collies, it's 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 a sight to behold. So, do you think that a knight goes into battle with a dull sword or a weak sword? And do you think that a shepherd will trust the flock to an untrained, undisciplined, lazy, deaf, dumb, and blind border collie. It's, it's simple, really, when you look at it in those terms. If we're deaf, dumb, and blind, how can we, if we're deaf, how can we hear the shepherd's calls? If we're blind, how can we see where the shepherd is and how can we see where the flock is and where the where the strays are 
And if we're dumb, how can we bark what we need to bark at the strays to get them back, to get the herd back back together? How can we herd if we if we're silent, if we can't, if we don't have a voice? And if we're lazy, even if we do hear the call, even if we do have the voice, <laughs> or if we're lethargic, or if we're gluttonous, right? How can we, how can we last the day working out in the fields if we don't have the endurance, if we don't have the constitution to work with our inner shepherd, our inner most Lord and master. So, yeah, Azazel, by all means, read it again. As iron sharpens iron, Azazel says. Alexander says, so, an alcoholic's God is alcohol itself. Let's refer to the statement, one can serve only one master, either God or money. How can one truly know their innermost if they're corrupt by dollars, considering all that exists in the outer world is an extension of money? At least perhaps with my own psyche, it's perceived this way. A man cannot serve two masters. It's well put. It's well said. An alcoholic's God, ironically, well, you know that the uh, the word alcohol itself comes from Arabic, al-kul. It's a demon to the Arabs, to the to the Sufis. Al-kul was a is a is a demon, as a is a evil spirit, and that's why we call them spirits, right? Alcoholic drinks, right? We call them spirits, and the word alcohol comes from al-kul. But all that aside. Alcoholism is self-loathing. And one turns to Al-Kul, the demon. Al-Kul seduces one who is self-loathing and, and, and ensnares them in his trap of the physical alcohol. And, and it's, and it's, uh, it's metaphysical psychological uh, uh, effects and, and um, physiological effects. But self-loathing, which is shame, the dark side of pride, uh, if the person isn't ensnared by al-kul, then you're right. They can be ensnared by money. They can be addicted to money or addicted to power, addicted to gambling addicted to sex addicted to video games there's uh, people can basically addict themselves to anything really anything that feeds that shame's desire to continue to self-sabotage and self-destroy oneself out of self-loathing out of a feeling of unworthiness and we must emphasize that even though we talk about um, not being qualified to wield the power of God, 
We have to allow the power of God to flow through us. We have to allow our innermost intimate God to wield us. And thus, the power of God flows through us into the world. So it's not, it's not that I'm qualified to be telling you on any of this. I'm not. Which is why when we do these talks, you often see me hesitating and pausing and you know what's am i just having a bad day no i'm waiting i'm waiting for the next thing that i need to say and if it doesn't come i don't say anything i take a dramatic pause i'm not afraid of pausing i'm not afraid of letting a few seconds go past maybe for some of you it can be a little bit boring or a little bit you know, like you say, oh, these, 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 these live streams go for hours already. Can't you speed it up? Well, no, I can't because I'm not qualified. But then there are times when it's just flowing like a river and, you know, and then it's like bang, 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 bang. And it's like, then you might be saying, oh, won't this guy shut up? <laughs> <laughs> doesn't this guy doesn't doesn't this guy ever have to take a breath? Man, he loves the sound of his own voice. Well, it just is what it is. It is what it is. It is what it is. When it's flowing, it's flowing. When it's not, it's not. And you know, I'm not qualified to make that decision, and I'm not qualified to fill dead space with a bunch of nonsense. Why would I do that? Why would I do that? You guys don't come here for nonsense. And we hope, we hope that after today, you'll know that you come here in part to determine for yourself if you're a member of the Army of World Salvation. Azazel says, yeah, we see in movies when a knight fails his duty that would rather kill themselves uh, before judgment. Look, we all make mistakes. We all make mistakes. We're only human. And we're flawed and we're new at this. And so, and the adversary is clever and subtle and loves getting in the way and loves twisting and corrupting and loves, right? It's, it's depending on the adversary, the nature of our adversary, um, the nature of, you know, just, just how high a mountain we've come to climb, just what kind of burdens and obstacles we've been saddled with on this journey we have to or we might consider having the same compassion for ourselves as our innermost being and our divine mother has for us so if you screw up no don't go and kill yourself if you have a moment of weakness no do not go and kill yourself and don't worry about how you're going to be judged don't worry about that. Just don't worry. 
relax, relax, relax. It's all water under the bridge. As long as you pay attention, um, and as Azil follows up, he says, more of a comment about self-loathing in general. But that's exactly right. Don't give in to self-loathing. Because that's a very clever ego. And we'll, we'll give you a little hint. Because chances are, if you screw up, and, and because you screw up, self-loathing appears, Shame appears because you because you failed at something. There's a very good chance that the last few times that you succeeded in something, pride was there. You see, because shame is the dark underbelly of pride. So beware and observe yourself as you go through your life's work and your life's mission that you that you haven't been feeding pride. And that the reason why you had to fail, maybe or even your divine mother set you up to fail, so that so that you would experience self-loathing, so that you would you would say, "Oh, wait a minute." And as Azil says, "Yeah, very much so." Okay, so, but don't give in to self-loathing in the same way but recognize that that self-loathing is just pride. He's just turned his, he's two-faced, right? Like the Batman villain. He just, you know, he just turned the other way now. Good cop, bad cop. And when everything's going great, it's, wow, it's pride. It's, it's big smiles and, you know, glowing teeth and all the rest of it, right? And walking on the red carpet and, oh, aren't I fantastic? What a great, what a great bodhisattva I am. Look at all these wonderful things I'm doing for all these people. Oh, I'm saving souls like nobody's ever, like nobody's saved them before. And then, yeah, yeah. And then she comes along and she pulls the red carpet right out from under us and we fall bang flat on our ass, right in front of all the paparazzi who are taking pictures. <laughs> and all of a sudden, we, 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 we shrivel up in shame, like, oh my God. And our self-image has to be shattered. But if we allow that, that uh, unrealistic, narcissistic, mystical, mystic pride self, to turn into self-loathing and we start indulging our self-loathing, that's just a different version of mystic pride. Oh, I'm such a terrible Gnostic. I'm such a terrible, I'm never going to be a Buddha. Blah, 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 blah. And then we go and we start binging on, you know, chocolate and ice cream or, you know, or, or drinking or whatever it is that we do when we wallow in our own self-pity and self-misery and self-loathing. Yeah. Yeah. Something tells me that many of us can relate to this on one level or another, <laughs> on one level or another. And it's not necessarily always like on the spiritual level, right? Because remember, the spiritual path is often very mundane, right? Because the innermost being is with us all the time. Our true self is with us all the time, even when we're washing dishes, even when we're chopping wood, even when we're carrying water. Uh, Alexander says, thanks for the feedback. 
Sometimes I'm curious and wonder, which God am I serving? It's easy to carry a weapon for many gods, uh, kind of like a guild weapon. Perhaps we're all mercenaries waiting for direction uh, from our innermost then. Perhaps that's what you're saying all along. The uh, fact of the matter is that, you know, a man cannot serve two masters, but make no mistake, the adversary, our innermost shaitan, Satan, which is an amalgamation of all our egos, those egos are clever. Those egos are subtle. And those egos are made, made to control us through temptation, coercion, deception. They're designed, they're by very, by design, they are that way. So, invariably, invariably, our adversary shows us a quick path, an easy path, a path that makes us feel powerful, a path that makes us feel important, a path that makes us feel like we're in control. We're not in control. We're a puppet on strings. But that puppet master, that Satan, in order to win us over, creates the illusion that we're the ones with the power. We're the ones in control. And it does so through all the voices in our head that begin with I, I want, I am, I don't want, I'm not that. I am powerful. I am this, I am that, which is one of the reasons why we personally have a big, big, big problem with the new age and its so-called affirmations, where you have people in meditation, in prayer, chanting to themselves, maybe even practicing breathing exercises, so channeling prana into these things. I am unlimited abundance. I am this. I am that. I, 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 I. What they think they're doing, they think that they are affirming themselves to be God. But what they're doing is they are affirming their egos, the adversaries, Satan's stranglehold over their spiritual path. And that Satan has co-opted. And as you said, Alexander, they're affirming Satan as their God, even as they believe that they are affirming themselves to be God incarnate. That's how clever and subtle the egos are. And that's how you know how the, the, the new age is a, is, a, 
is a uh, an insidious, diabolical creation of the Black Lodge. Mugaboo twenty two says, "I have known since a child that I was went to that I was meant to serve God. The question now is, do I have the discipline, perseverance, and fortitude? Seriously, without the help of my divine mother, I don't." That's very well said. That's very well put. But the reason why we rely on her is in part for the tests, challenges, and ordeals that make us stronger, that make us worthy, that strengthen us, that's like that that forge the blade and hone the steel and then sharpen the edge, right? These are what uh, like we've talked about many times before, like the baffles in a uh, in an ecosystem or in a sewage treatment plant. As the water flows and and hits the baffles, it flows and it swirls around. The baffles are obstacles to the water. But the more baffles you put in there, the more the water swirls around, like in a, in a spiral, that's the alm of life, the more structured the water becomes. The water becomes more alive, able to dissolve better and able to carry more nutrient. So it becomes a more powerful cleanser, which is especially what you need in a, in a water treatment facility, but also what you need in, e, in, in an ecosystem because the water needs to be able to dissolve the minerals from the rocks and it needs to be able to carry a lot of nutrient in itself. And it needs to be able to deliver that nutrient throughout the ecosystem. So it has to be alive. It has to be vibrant and strong. And the only way to do that is the water has to fall. It has to flow over rocks. It, and, and, you know, that's why rivers are what they are. And rain falls from the sky onto the land. And all that water trickles through and goes through all those eventually into uh, streams and then rivers and then rapids and then raging torrents and then maybe over waterfalls. Why? So that by the time that water re reaches the ocean, its source, it is renewed, it is alive, it is vibrant, it is energetic, it is powerful. Now you can understand why the water in the ocean is so powerful and why it's salt water. It's able to absorb all of that salt into itself because that's the nutrient and everything that, that's, that's, that's what belongs in the ocean. So yes, always remember your divine mother and pay attention to the tests, the challenges and the ordeals and welcome them. Welcome the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Welcome the obstacles, the baffles. And just see them as what they are. They're tests, they're obstacles. And, and recognize and observe that in yourself that needs to change in order to overcome that. And that is the process of, you guys, certainly, we all are familiar with the samurai sword and the katana and how the blacksmiths would make those things and they would work on one sword for six months at a time. 
uh, bending and folding and, you know, forging and rebending and forging. And like the, 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 the metal in the blade was folded over 500 times. So, and that is why the katanas resonate with such an energy and such a vibrancy and such a vitality that the samurai believed that they had a soul. Because if you ever hold an authentic katana, you can feel it. If you're sensitive to energy, you can feel it. You can feel that it's resonating, that it has this vibration to it. This, this, this energetic tonality. It's there because you can't, you can't spend that much time and energy and effort banging away, aligning the 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 substance, the 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 carbon atoms and everything and and the um, the steel atoms without you can't create that alignment without creating a natural resonating like a tuning fork like a pitchfork but it's it's or like very very finely tuned guitar strings or piano strings it's the same thing only it's not stretched out and done like a piano string it's just it just is it's 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 naturally stretched out and it's always has that tensile uh, uh, attunement to it so it has that resonance to it so that's what our divine mother does for us in everything that she puts us through yeah yeah she's forging us she's honing us she's sharpening us It was like when Galadriel telling Sauron, you have no power here, <laughs> um, for sure. And we experienced something uh, similar personally, and we're told to treat all beings with utmost sincerity and respect. We were slammed face to the ground, and we were bleeding out. So yeah, we felt the red carpet all right. <laughs> Our uh, Divine Mother can be a harsh taskmaster. Life can be a very harsh teacher. And, um, and severity can be very severe. But sometimes that's what we need. Sometimes it's unavoidable because we have so much karma, because we're so asleep, because we're so um, entrenched in our ways of doing and ways of being and, and our, our patterns of behavior and condition, conditioning and beliefs and our psychological song that keeps singing the same old tune. Um, you know, on that note, it's like when you're playing a record and the needle is skipping so it just keeps playing the same part of the song over and over and over and over and what you need is for someone to come and like 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 scratch the needle to get it to the next song or someone has to come and bang the table or something to get the needle to jump so it'll stop skipping so it'll stop playing that same round over and over and over again 
And Azazel says, yes, uh, the fear of God is definitely the beginning of something. That's fair, uh, but not fear, not fear of God. That's, um, we don't do things because we're afraid of the consequences of not doing them. When we're on the path of the Bodhisattva, we're on the path of vision and purpose and passion. We should be on that path because it's the, it's the source of our passion. It's the source of our purpose. It's what gives our life meaning. It's what motivates us, what drives us. It's our bliss. If we are there and going through the motions only because we fear what will happen to us if we don't, if we fear what will happen if we stray off the path, then we're feeding our ego. And there will always be a part of us. And, there, and, and as we feed our ego, we feed that aspect of our lower self, which wants to be in control. And then the problem with that is that we are not meant to be in control. We are not meant to be in control of our path. Our innermost being, our Divine Mother, is in control of our path. Our free will is to accept it or not. If we fear not accepting it, then we will, want, then we will accept it, but conditionally. We will want to control the process and possibly even the outcome. <clears throat> this is subtle, but this is this is important. And remember, you will find few people around who can reveal to you the demon of fear's secrets better than we can. I'm sure there are others out there, but for right now, you're here, and we we this is this is why we suffer with what we suffer this was that was our mountain right and that epilepsy and that 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 possession by fear is because we because we know this is one of the greatest uh uh obstacles and adversaries and most insidious and clever and subtle egos that we face when we are on the path when we are on the Mahayama path. Because fear is control. And the path of the Bodhisattva is all about relinquishing control. It's all about surrender, right? It's all about serving, being a loyal servant and vessel for our innermost. And if it's, if it's in the cards, if it's our destiny, eventually for the Christ itself. This is an anathema to all egos, but especially fear. There's nothing that fear 
loathes more. There's nothing that fear fears and dreads more than relinquishing control, let alone to, to the Christ. The light of Christ is absolutely terrifying to egos, but especially our fear. And so we should try. I know that, you know, uh, the Old Testament is chock full of verses expounding the virtues of, uh, of fearing God and being a, a good and proper, upright, upstanding, God-fearing Christian or God-fearing Muslim or God-fearing Jew or whatever. Uh, I, be a God-serving vessel. A loyal and faithful servant who knows they are at their best when they are serving their innermost Lord and Master. Jarvis doesn't fear Tony Stark. Uh, Alfred <laughs> doesn't fear Batman, Bruce Wayne. Samwise Gamgee doesn't fear Frodo. Hanuman is not afraid of Rama. Dr. Watson is not afraid of Sherlock Holmes. Sheepdogs are not afraid of the master. They respect the master. They honor the master. They serve the master. And they watch the master. They're always waiting and observing. And if you have dogs, you know this about dogs. They're always attentive. Because to dogs, dogs think that you know, man, their owners, are effectively their god. That's why dogs are man's best friend. We get your point, right? You have to be, you have to respect. We have to respect and honor the path and respect and honor our vow and that we should also know that if we break our vow there's a good chance that uh, bad things will come of it and any servant knows that any loyal servant any loyal soldier knows that if they, a soldier knows that if he deserts his fellow 
soldiers or if he deserts the army, he has to suffer the consequences. But um, we, we, we share this Lumiere quote here. You know, life is so unnerving for a servant who's not serving. He's not whole without a soul to wait upon. That soul in this instance, our innermost being. Fear is never a good thing. It's never a good thing. It just isn't. And as Azul says, yeah, and comprehend that we truly do not have any power here. Um, our strength, our power, if we have any, should flow from the being. We should draw our strength, our willpower, and the quiet confidence that, yes, we are ready. We know what we're doing. Maybe we're not ready to play out the final act of our life's work. But here and now, this step, yeah, we're ready to take this step. The step that's right in front of us, right here and now. Because we have the faith and trust and we know ourselves. We put the faith and trust in our Divine Mother and in our innermost being. But we have to practice, we have to work to get that knowledge, to get that connection, to have that faith, to have that quiet confidence. This doesn't happen overnight it doesn't happen just by snapping our fingers or just by wanting to be wanting it to be so right again it's like going to the gym and getting in shape building your muscles right this 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 is a a process that we have to undergo and for some of us it can it can take a long time and yeah it's not that we have that power, that it's our power to have or our power to wield. But it's a strength that we draw from and it's a power that flows through us to endure what we must endure, to suffer what we must suffer and to be able to have the willpower and the strength and the courage to let go, of we must, of, to sacrifice what must be sacrificed for our path, for our destiny, for the path of vision, a life of purpose, and for the burning passion in our heart of hearts, which emanates from our innermost intimate Christ, who is the fire of fires, the light of lights and the being of beings. The source of all true passion which burns in the hearts of men and women for the sake of the end of suffering of all beings. 
So let go of the need to be powerful. Let go of the need to wield power and unlimited, infinite power can, can flow through you into the world. Yeah, uh, Azazel says, Galadriel referred to power that is powered by the desire to control. That's right. There's power over others. And so that's why we like to use the word strength, because you can be strong and not be powerful, if that makes any sense. In that worldly sense. So we draw our strength from within. We can be the strong, silent type. Or we can be the strong, verbose type, if that's our destiny, if that's what we're meant to be, if that's what we're supposed to do. But that strength of character and that integrity, again, that comes from within, that's related to that passion. We can't, we can't have our cake and eat it too. We can't just have the passion to serve others, right? And not have to do everything else that goes along with that. That's perhaps what the whole point of the second half of this live stream has been about. Okay. We're just past the three hour mark. So uh, many of you have hung on till the end. So why don't we open it up to some questions or comments? We'll give you guys a couple minutes to, uh, to type those in. Um, This, is, this was a topic that uh, came up this week uh, in relation to the Atlas Project. And we just want to reiterate that, that things are, are moving and things will be moving forward. So, um, well, we'll share more when we have more information. Benjamin says... If you have knowledge of truth, let him be king. But, it, but if you have strength or power, let him repudiate it. It's interesting because uh, knowledge is power. <laughs> That's the... Um, What comes to mind is that scene from Gladiator when Marcus Aurelius tells Maximus that he will make him protector of Rome after he dies and that he will empower Maximus to one end alone, to end the corruption and restore Rome to a republic. Because, of course, Maximus is uh, the head of the Felix legions. He's, he's a general. He commands those legions, right? And, uh, and Maximus is 
you know, clearly disturbed by Marcus Aurelius's proclamation. And Marcus Aurelius says, do you not accept this great honor I, I give you? And Maximus says, with all my heart, no. And Marcus Aurelius grabs him, grabs his face, and he says, don't you see, Maximus? That is why it must be you. That the only man who's worthy of ruling Rome, of ruling the empire, is one who doesn't want the who doesn't want it, who doesn't want that power. <laughs> that's the only man that's worthy of sitting on the throne and 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 being empowered to oversee the empire. The only one worthy of the empire is the one who doesn't want it. That's what came into our mind when with with in relation to your uh, to your comment, Benjamin. Because of course Maximus is qualified. Marcus Aurelius knows this. That's why Marcus Aurelius would, wouldn't entrust him to any any would entrust his legacy and the empire to anyone else, not even to his own son, because he says Commodus is not a moral man. Anyway, if you remember the film, then you you'll you'll know what we're uh, talking about. But yes, uh, and so many get into politics these days, and so many get, that's all they want. All they want is power. All they want is control. All they want is to feel strong and to be seen as strong. Uh, people like Trudeau, our so-called illustrious prime minister who's not, who's, who's, whose name, he's sullied the name of his father. Like <laughs> Mugaboo 22 says, I have a question. What are your thoughts on romantic love, whether heterosexual or homosexual? If we are talking about having a partner, a romantic partner, a spouse, because if you have sex with someone in the eyes of the universe, you're married to them. So, uh, but in this path, on the path, especially on the direct path, the path of the razor's edge, the path of the bodhisattva, uh, we work with the fires of kundalini. And we work with the fires of kundalini and sexual alchemy. And so that process, that practice, is uh is important and love plays an important part but we'll let's you have a couple more comments here so let's let me read all of them and then we'll we'll but first uh benjamin says yes you are right and those that are really qualified have no desire to grab power okay so let's continue with mugaboo's uh, uh comments here on love i find the word love to be vague in my language or in english or french the word love is used in many different instances I love my mother. I love watching the sunset. I love watching basketball. <laughs> All these are different types of love, or are they? Is it the same feeling expressed in different situations, or are they different feelings under the same name love?
love expresses itself as severity and mercy in balanced measure applied unconditionally with infinite wisdom. That's the love of the Divine Mother. That's the love of God. We were talking about this throughout this live stream. How there's tough love, but there's also gentle love, right? And you can speak to your children with a firm voice and direct them. You know, when you're cross with them, you have to, you have to explain to them, no, you can't do that. And then you can speak to them in a gentle, caring, kind, compassionate, merciful voice. That's still love. Love is, in, a, in that directed way, in that expressed way, always seeking what's best for others. Always helping them, always guiding them, always uplifting them empowering them, strengthening them. Uh, Benjamin throws in here to say, in ancient times, love is just three types, agape, agape or unconditional love, platonic or brotherly love, and eros or erotic love. Yeah, see, we don't like those ancient distinctions because they're intellectual and they're philosophical, but they don't apply. They're not practical. And the reason why they're not practical is because it's all love. The love of your brother, the platonic love, brotherly love, is no different than the love you have for your child. Shouldn't be. It really shouldn't be. Why should brotherly love be any different why should brotherly love be conditional? All love should be unconditional. Unconditional love. And eros, yes, it's true. Eros is the father of psyche. Eros is the, the, the god of love. But erotic, that's uh sexual attraction that is a love in sexual union is simply love expressing itself so what we were going to say was everything has a masculine and a feminine expression including love there's the love that you express and the love that you receive. But because there's a masculine and expressive uh, nature or masculine and feminine nature of love, the ultimate expression of love is union. The union of masculine and feminine. So when the expression of love is received by the, re the reception in love, in kind, then you have a union of expression and reception, and then you have the creation of this magical, beautiful experience. So, 
we're going to use the uh you said something about uh sunsets right i love watching the sunset well you love watching the sunset because there's something about that expression that solar christic expression that you receive in your consciousness and you receive in your heart you receive it in love it was expressed in love you receive it in love and in that union the creation of this this love you feel love that's the i love watching sunsets there's something about them it's the same thing with um ah, if you love watching basketball there's something about basketball which you love now there's levels and levels and uh and there are intensities right and so now you wouldn't put your love of watching basketball on the same level as the love you have for your mother the t- so love what we're describing here is that union okay that union with something which resonates with an aspect of yourself on that being level so we call that affinity when you have an affinity for something it can be said that you have a deep love for it and to experience it to interact with it engage with it to be one with it it triggers that affinity for that particular thing and of course because we're talking about a kind of an uh frequency energetic exchange here it's almost like just you know something vibrating in your own frequency and so you know it's like when it's like in a sexual partner you have chemistry what does that mean you have chemistry with your partner well that means energetically you are in tune with your partner energetically you share a lot of the same vibrations you 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 feel good vibes when you're close to them you have friends good friends best friends that you have this affinity for because you vibrate at the same frequency you have the same beliefs perhaps the same uh hobbies the same you know similarity uh, personality perhaps or on whatever level or on a soul level you just have a deep deep connection that's another word that we use right a connection to other people so love is all of those things but love is ultimately making that connection with other phenomena and that when you make that connection you feel as though you're plugging into something so much bigger than yourself and that something that you're plugging into it's like for you that's helps you make a connection to god because it 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 just registers with you it resonates with you so some people maybe some people prefer sunrises you prefer sunsets it's just it's just a preference it's just an individual just it's just how they roll it's what they resonate with you resonate with sunsets they resonate with sunrises 
Benjamin says, in other words, transliteration of uh, love, um, I guess, gets us in trouble with the intellect. If we go so far as to say that love is God or God is love and everything is God, then there's a potential to love everything. But, oh, and he just clarified, uh, the transliteration of words gets us in trouble with the intellect. Yeah. So, having said that, there's also, we also have the word like, you know? Um, yeah, I like ice cream. I don't know if I would say I love ice cream, but I like it. I don't know if alcoholics love alcohol, but they must like it. They, they, they drink a lot of it, so they must like it. There's something about it they must like. I don't know if they love it. So, you know, these, this is where everything's on a gradient in that sense. Everything's on a levels and levels and levels, and there's, there's, there's different versions of it. But from the spiritual point of view, from a Gnostic point of view, whether we're talking about a mother, a child, uh, uh, a best friend, or your spouse, your sexual partner, that filial love, that unconditional love, you should want what's best for them. And indeed, from a Gnostic point of view or from a spiritual point of view, and that's what the whole kind of purpose for the whole talk today is, on some level, you must feel that in your heart for all beings, for all people on the planet and for all living beings. The, 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 the willingness to suffer and sacrifice for the sake of the end of suffering of all beings. Well, that's unconditional love. Jesus hanging on the cross is an expression of his unconditional love for this humanity. A humanity which doesn't deserve that, which didn't deserve that, doesn't deserve it today. But we don't, we don't, we're not here doing what we're doing because they deserve it. But we, we're here because we see, we recognize, we feel, we know that they need it. They need our help. This humanity needs us. This humanity is in desperate need for the efforts, the work of the army of world salvation. This, this humanity needs not just one, not just five or ten or a dozen or two dozen or a hundred. This humanity is need of is in need of thousands of warriors of the light of truth gnostic warriors who are fighting for their salvation who are fighting for their souls their immortal souls which are in jeopardy which are in jeopardy of entering into devolution and the second death this is no small thing this is no trivial matter and it is, and because of the, the that path of suffering and sacrifice for others, what what possible motivation could there be if not love, and not unconditional love? 
considering the suffering and sacrifice we must endure. For what appears to be complete strangers, but we know nothing's by accident, and in fact, we are connected with them, we are one with them. The more we walk the path of the Bodhisattva, the more we feel that. Intuitively, intrinsically, at the center of our being, that when we confront someone, that we know we're here to help. We know that it is their own Divine Mother who has asked our innermost to have us intervene on her behalf for the sake of that individual. And we can feel that, we know that. We're informed of that consciously these days. Just coming back to the uh, earlier conversations about, you know, and so we, but that sort of connection and that sort of knowledge, that's, that's, that's a knowledge of a, a level of love, a level of connection with, with someone who is otherwise a complete, a complete stranger who we've never met, we've never met in this lifetime. But that bond, that union, that connection is there. And we have that with all beings. He that saves a single soul saves the world entire. It's all connected. It's all connected. We hope that answered your question, Mugaboo twenty-two. It's a, it's. We understand where you're coming from, especially if you're as a as a non-native English speaker. Um, it can be. I mean, love is one of those words that poets have been writing about for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, Rumi, how many words did Rumi write about love? All of Rumi's poetry is about love. Now, nobody's ever been able to seemingly uh, been able to nail it down. It's one of those words that uh, eludes definition because how do you define God? God is love. The universe is God, so I guess love is def defined by um, potentially everything in the universe. <laughs> But, uh, okay, Mugaboo says, yes, appreciate your wisdom. Um, yeah, so just keep in mind that the, uh, the question you asked, uh, you know, so, so what is love exactly? <laughs> um, uh, it, it's, it's, you know, if we wanted to be trite and uh, clever about it, we could have said, well, it is what it is. Love is what it is. Now, how can we say that? Because the holy name of God is I am that I am. Eheye Esher Eheye. And if God can say, I am that I am, if God is what it is, what, what it is, and God is love, then love is what it is. 
but that's a little bit of a cop-out clever answer so we hope that uh we hope that it works as azil says we respect that connection so the stream today was helpful you're uh it it, it warms our heart to know that uh that you uh you found it so as azil we always we always love to have you here we always appreciate your comments and uh because your comments and questions and sharing your experience always adds more to this to to the topic it always brings more to the discussion and we know that others benefit that's why it's good to come together and 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 share in this way otherwise we're all just alone on our own path right and we can't it's hard to learn from others and why why shouldn't we learn from each other's mistakes as well as each other's triumphs right Let's learn from each other if we can. So I, we always appreciate you being here, Azazil, and Magabu and Benjamin, um, and everyone. Everyone is here. Um, let's see if we can't wrap up with any more questions or comments. Uh, if anybody has any more to anything more to add, um, we, as we said, we'll we'll keep you abreast of developments that are uh, taking place. We have a lot of work ahead of us. Um, oh. You know, we've been talking for a long, long, long time about the, uh, the book that we need to write. And um, so... In the in the coming as we you know well we'll share with you a little bit more maybe next week hopefully some things will start falling into place this week and we'll have some things to share we don't want to share anything too prematurely because if it changes then we don't want to feel like we've uh, we misled you in any way but um it seems to us that uh, the 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 topics and the uh, the book itself is is solidifying. Things are coming together um, in terms of the book that we need to write here and now, the first book that we need to write in 2023. And there may be more than one that we write this year. And um, and so uh, that process is is now underway and because we have so much content that we've accumulated over the years uh, we have a good we have a lot of uh, content to draw from and to uh, modify and update and chisel and hone and and um, and format into this this new property this new um artifact so that's that's something that we're going to be working on for the next little while so as as we said when we we get along in the journey there and get along on the path we'll 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 share with you when we have stuff more to share all right any more questions or comments anyone anyone at all <laughs> 
Um, thank you all for coming out, as always, as usual. Benjamin says, thank you, sir, for today's live stream. I wish you success with your endeavor. A lot of people will benefit from it. Uh, I hope so. I hope so. Um, we'll see. We'll see how, because uh, it's, it, we're going to be self-publishing, it looks like, and and that means we're going to be having to promote it ourselves and, and or work through a, uh, get some help on that front, but we'll see. Dokia says, great motivation and food for thought. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, I hope if you found inspiration today, that makes us all the more happy because all of us have hidden potential that is just waiting for us to discover and explore and unpack and surrender to. Awakened Reflection says, thank you always. Most welcome. Thank you for being here. All right, then, everyone. Uh, with that, thank you so much for coming out. We'll hopefully see you next week. As always, where are you? Inverential peace. Take care, everyone.